0: Hello, and welcome back to The Fall of the Roman Empire. It's Nick Holmes, and this is episode 69, called The Great Survivor. Last time, we heard about the rise of the Ostrogoths, and in this episode, I'd like to focus on the Roman side of things, and find out in more detail what happened in the Emperor Zeno's reign, which I think is a somewhat overlooked turning point for the Eastern Empire. Zeno's reign began in January 474 when the Emperor Leo died. You'll recall That Leo's reign was very mixed. He's principally remembered for two things. First, his disastrous expedition to recover Carthage, which cost 130,000 pounds of gold, or 60 times the annual tribute paid to Attila. And second, executing the barbarian general Aspar, who'd been responsible for promoting him to the position of emperor in the first place, but who was threatening to rule the Eastern Empire like the barbarian generals in the West. As mentioned in the last episode, I think the catastrophe at Carthage in 468 dominated the next 20 years because it basically bankrupted the state and left the army gravely weakened. Because of this, when Leo died six years later in 474, he left his successor Zeno with an almighty mess to clear up, which is really the subject of this episode. The first point to note about Zeno is that he was not a normal Eastern Roman emperor because he was an Isaurian. The Isaurians were fiercely independent mountain people living in the Taurus Mountains in southern Anatolia and had a long history of rebellion under Roman rule. They came to prominence in the 5th century because Leo introduced them into the regular army to oppose the powerful Gothic faction led by Aspar. Among several Isaurian leaders was Zeno, who Leo took a particular liking to, and let him marry his daughter Ariadne, making him the heir to the throne, since Leo had no sons. As you'll recall from the last episode, this had caused a major ruction between Leo and Aspar, which led to Leo's assassination of Aspar in 471. Aspar's death alienated the Thracian Goths led by Theodoric Strabo, the squinter as he was called, causing a direct threat to Constantinople, as we'll hear more about. And to make matters worse, in the city itself, the people of Constantinople detested the Azorians, who they regarded as uncouth barbarians. So, Leo passed a veritable poisoned chalice to Zeno, whose reign must go down in history as one of the most turbulent of any Roman emperor. His first challenge came from his mother-in-law, Verina, who'd been married to Leo, when Zeno married her daughter Ariadne, as I mentioned, she'd been happy to go along with this, but she was a truly formidable woman, and once he was on the throne, Zeno proved deeply unpopular with almost everyone, and not just his mother-in-law. The consensus was that Leo had made a terrible mistake, making him emperor. And I think most of his unpopularity stemmed from his being Isaurian but he also seems to have been a fairly underwhelming person, at least in the first years of his reign. As described by the historian J.B. Berry, who summarised the views of most chroniclers, who, quote, described him as physically horrible and morally abominable, and he was said to be a coward, end quote. So, not exactly the best start to his reign. And it was relatively easy for Verena to convince him he was about to be assassinated. One day in November 475, as he was watching the chariot races in the Hippodrome, he received an urgent message from her that there was a conspiracy to assassinate him that very day. He immediately got up from the imperial chair and hastily Beat a retreat from the hippodrome and later that day slipped out of Constantinople with his wife Ariadne and a retinue of servants to seek safety in Azoria. Verena had, of course, made the whole thing up because she wanted to put on the throne her lover, a senator named Patricius. The moment it became known that Zeno had fled the capital, the mob rampaged through the city, killing whatever Azorians they could lay their hands on. Meanwhile, Verena's treachery backfired on her when the Senate chose not her lover, Patricius, as emperor, but her brother, Basiliscus, the man who'd famously led the great Roman armada to destruction in 468. And Basiliscus was not afraid to confront his fiery sister and put her in her place by having her lover, Patricius, executed. Farina, terrified for her own life, backed off, perhaps rueing that she had ever conspired against Zeno. Basiliscus was a man who, over the last 1500 years, has received not one kind word from any chronicler or historian. He was universally detested then, and he still is. Indeed, it was truly remarkable that he attained the position of emperor at all. And once he did, he did everything possible to lose it. The first thing was to attract ridicule by promoting the lover of his beautiful wife, Zenonis, Completely unknown to Basiliscus, she was having a passionate affair with a senator called Armatus. A chronicler recorded, quote, "...their relationship became intimate." And as they were persons of no ordinary beauty, they became extravagantly enamoured of each other. They used to exchange glances and smile at each other in public, scarcely concealing their passion, To make himself even more of a laughing stock, Basiliscus agreed to his wife's demand to make her lover the senior magister militum, replacing the Thracian goth Strabo, who was not surprisingly furious to be demoted. Amatus then caused popular outrage with his vain antics, well described by J.B. Berry. Quote, when he was promoted by his mistress's husband, Amatus imagined that he was a man of valour and dressed himself as Achilles, in which guise he used to ride about to the amusement of the people in the Hippodrome. The mob named him Pyrrhus on account of his pink cheeks. But he took this as a compliment to his valour and became still more inflated with pride. End quote. The popular dislike of Basiliscus was further inflamed when it became known he was a monophysite, a Christian sect that we'll hear more about in due course, which was popular in some parts of the empire but deeply unpopular in Constantinople. The final straw was a great fire in the city which caused extensive destruction and burnt to the ground an enormous library called the Basilica founded by the Emperor Julian the Apostate and containing over 120,000 books. One of the victims of the fire was a famous copy of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey which had been written in golden characters on the intestine of a great serpent, 120 feet long. This fire clearly had nothing to do with Basiliscus, but the inhabitants of the city attributed it to divine vengeance for his idiotic rule. Messages were sent to Zeno in Isoria, begging him to return and depose Basiliscus. Zeno gathered Isaurian troops and was joined by his fellow Isorian, Ilus, who had previously supported Basiliscus, but now switched sides and backed Zeno. Zeno marched on Constantinople. Basiliscus responded by ordering Amatus, his wife's lover, to muster the troops in the city and March to meet Zeno in battle. But Amatus wasn't going to risk his life to save his mistress's husband. He sent messages to Zeno telling him that he too would swap sides. He pretended to lose his way and led his soldiers in the wrong direction. Zeno entered the capital in August 476 without any resistance. Basiliscus fled with his family to the church of Hagia Sophia, not the one we can see today, but the one that burned down before Justinian rebuilt it, just as he'd done when he returned from his disastrous expedition to Carthage. Zeno persuaded the patriarch Acacius to hand them all over by promising he would not shed their blood. Zeno was as good as his word. Instead of beheading them, Zeno sent Basiliscus, his unfaithful wife and their children, to the bottom of a huge dry cistern in Cappadocia, where he left them, unable to escape or to eat, to die of starvation. At long last, the man who'd led the great armada of 468 to destruction met his just deserts. Zeno had promised to Amartus that he would spare his life, and he honoured this for a few months before assassinating him. Against all expectations, the unpopular Zeno had triumphed and perhaps earned some respect. He had certainly learnt some survival skills, which he would continue to need over the next 15 years, because for the rest of his reign, Zeno continued to face enough revolts and civil wars sufficient to fill a century's worth of normal Roman history. He faced three main challenges. First, the growing power of the Ostrogoths. Second, Isaurian rivals, particularly in the form of his main general, Ilus; And third, a religious controversy called monophysitism. With all three, he found a way of navigating past them so that by the time of his death, the empire was on much firmer ground. The next rebellion he faced was again caused by his troublesome mother-in-law, Verena. She had survived the execution of her brother Basiliscus, and her enmity was now directed against Zeno's Isorian general, Ilus, who had saved him from Basiliscus, and on whom he seemed increasingly reliant. She planned his assassination. One day, an imperial slave was discovered lying in wait for him, sword-drawn. Then, another would-be assassin, an Alan, was caught, who confessed under torture that he'd been paid by the Empress Verena to assassinate Islas. Islas was understandably furious and forced Zeno to banish her to the castle of Dallisandus in Tarsus, which then provided a pretext for a rebellion by her son-in-law Marcian, who had married her younger daughter Leontia. Marcion was the son of Anthemius, the western emperor, and claimed his wife Leontia. Ranked above her older sister Ariadne because she'd been born in the purple, meaning when Leo was actually emperor, while Ariadne was born before he was emperor and therefore not actually in the purple. This trifling difference in imperial etiquette provoked Marcion to attack the imperial palace in Constantinople, where he nearly captured Zeno, who, perfecting his survival skills, just managed to slip away. Aylus brought in Isorian troops who easily defeated the rebels. Zeno was surprisingly generous to them. Marcian was ordained a priest and banished to Cappadocia, while Leontia was sent to a convent. Neither of them was ever heard of again. But that was not the end of Zeno's turbulent domestic problems. His wife Ariadne protested that her mother Verena should be released from the castle where she was imprisoned and when Zeno refused, she plotted to kill Islis just as her mother had done. One day, as Ilus was walking to his seat in the Hippodrome in Constantinople, an assassin rose up to kill him, bringing his sword down on his head and cutting off his right ear. Eilus protested to Zeno that he must have known what his wife was up to. Zeno pretended he did not and ordered Eilus to leave Constantinople to take up a position of Magister Militum Per Oriens, the general in command of troops on the Persian front, hoping to get him out of harm's way. I should mention at this point there's an added twist to the relationship between, between Zeno and Ilus, which I haven't mentioned. Our sources are vague and confused, but one of them says Ilus was holding Zeno's brother Longinus prisoner. We'll hear more about Longinus in the next episode. This might explain Zeno's reluctance to offend Ilus, but when Ilus refused to hand Longinus over, there was a complete breakdown in relations between the two of them. Zeno relieved Ilus of his command and appointed John the Scythian in his stead. Ilus responded by gathering his Azorian troops to oust Zeno from the throne. But before we continue with this next step in the saga of Zeno's reign, we need to head over to the Ostrogoths, who are about to become very important in our story. As you know from the last episode, there were two sets of Ostrogoths vying for power in the Balkans the Pannonian Goths, led by Theodoric the Amal, and the Thracian Goths, led by Theodoric Strabo. During the 470s, Zeno kept negotiations going with both Theodorics, cunningly playing them off against each other. In 478, his master plan was was to persuade them to fight each other for Roman patronage, a bit like having two gladiators fight it out. He made overtures to both of them, promising huge rewards if they would defeat the other. He told Theodoric the Amal a large Roman army would join him to attack Strabo. This was a complete lie, and the two sets of Goths met in the central Balkans in the Hemus Mountains. They both realised Zeno was tricking them and agreed to a truce, but this didn't last and Zeno was able to win over Strabo to his side and leave Theodoric the Amal out in the cold. Facing both Strabo's Goths and the Roman army, Theodoric the Amal retreated west into Epirus and based himself at the Roman port of Dyrrachium on the Adriatic, which he'd taken a few years previously. At this point, Theodoric was contemplating crossing to Italy, but he didn't because Zeno and Strabo fell out, and Strabo supported the usurper Marcion when he launched his short-lived rebellion. Strabo advanced towards Constantinople, but its walls deterred him from attacking the city. An attempt to cross the Sea of Marmara was defeated by the Roman navy. Strabo resolved to take his people to Greece, but he never made it, One morning in 481, he mounted his horse, which reared unexpectedly and threw him to the ground. He might have survived, but he fell straight onto a spear, which had been planted in the ground point up. Our sources don't suggest this was the result of a conspiracy to kill him. Strabo's son, Resetach, succeeded him, and the Thracian Goths continue to exist as a separate entity. But Resetach himself was killed in late 483 or early 484 on his way from having a bath to a feast by agents of his rival Theodoric the Amal at Zeno's instigation. Our sources describe this as a pivotal moment in Gothic history for it enabled Theodoric the Amal to unite both the Pannonian and Thracian Goths into a Gothic supergroup. Or at least that's what our sources say. However, the historian Peter Heather doubts things were as simple as this, rather like the view that the breakup of the Hunnic Empire was portrayed in a simplified way by Jordanes. So he thinks that our few sources, including that of Jordanes, paint an oversimplified picture of the union of the two sets of Goths, which probably began much earlier than the death of Strabo. But whatever the truth, Theodoric the Amal emerged as the winner what would he and his Ostrogoths do now? Well, he vacillated between alliance with the Roman Emperor and defiance. At one point in 484, he sought an alliance with Zeno and sent him troops to join the Roman armies fighting Ilus. This brings us back to that conflict and in 484, in a great battle near to Seleucia, John the Scythian, leading both Romans and Ostrogoths, defeated Ilus and his Isaurian soldiers. Ilus fled to the fortress of Papurius in the Isaurian mountains, where the exiled Verina was living. Just prior to this, Zeno and Verina had become friends, united in their hatred of Zeno. The fortress held out for four years. Verena dying during this time, and in 488 it was finally taken by treachery and Ilus was beheaded. His head was sent to Zeno in Constantinople, where it was no doubt prominently displayed. Meanwhile, as Zeno was solving the Isaurian problem, things were not going well with Theodoric the Amal, who broke his truce with Zeno in 486 and marched on Constantinople, where he cut the water supply and laid siege to the city. But its formidable walls saved it once again. It seems Theodoric was giving up hope that he could take Constantinople or defeat the Romans in battle. He'd looked at the possibility of taking his People to Italy before, and in the autumn of 488, Zeno and Theodoric agreed that the Ostrogoths would leave the Balkans for Italy. Zeno said he could rule Italy for the Eastern Empire, thereby betraying his patrician in Italy, Odoessa, who in fact had done nothing wrong. So, in the autumn of 488, a huge force of Goths, numbering over 100,000 and including all their women and children, left Moesia and took the road past Viminacium towards Italy. How did Zeno persuade Theodoric to leave? Again, our sources don't explain why it was a mutually acceptable decision. It was obviously in Zeno's interest to persuade him to leave, but why was it in Theodoric's interest? I think the answer lies with the recovery of the Roman military by the 480s. As I've described before, I think the chaos in the 470s is explained by the Roman defeat outside Carthage in 468. This bankrupted the state and weakened the army to a point where the Goths and Isaurians could both dominate the Eastern Empire. But I suggest the army gradually recovered and by 488, 20 years after the Cape Bon catastrophe, it was again strong enough to resist the Ostrogoths. So I think this is the reason Theodoric decided to leave for Italy. He knew he couldn't beat the Eastern Romans. He knew he couldn't take Constantinople. He probably also knew that it was only a matter of time before the Romans took their revenge. So he left while the going was good and his timing was superb, as we will discover, for he was able to conquer Italy and create a truly spectacular Gothic Roman kingdom. Before we conclude with Zeno, I must briefly mention one aspect of his reign I've neglected. This concerns religion, a subject always close to the hearts of the Eastern Romans. I won't spend long on this, but suffice to say that just as Arianism had plagued the Roman Empire in the 4th century, monophysitism did the same in the 5th and 6th centuries. The two disputes were similar, involving the nature of Christ. Whereas Arianism held that Christ was subordinate to God, unlike the official view which declared him part of God and equal to God, monophysitism held that he had a purely divine nature. In contrast, to official teaching, which saw him as both fully divine and fully human. While this whole subject might seem an irrelevance to a modern audience, at the time it served to foster serious division within the Eastern Empire, which was extremely unhelpful. So, to try to sort this out, the Emperor Marcion held a council in Chalcedon in 451, which discussed the matter and concluded that Christ had two natures, i.e. both fully divine and fully human, which is still the view of the Catholic Church today. But this was rejected by the largely monophysite populations in Egypt and Syria, which caused Zeno to issue a compromise in 481 – called the Henoticon or Formula of Union, where he tried to gloss over the differences by de-emphasising the Council of Chalcedon, while also asserting the dual nature of Christ. This actually worked, to some extent, in reconciling Egypt and Syria, but it also caused the staunchly Catholic Church in Rome to excommunicate the Patriarch of Constantinople. Let me conclude on Zeno by saying that I think he was far more successful and important than many people give him credit for. He inherited from Leo a bankrupt treasury and an army shattered by the disaster at Carthage. These problems were compounded by the rise of the Ostrogoths and Leo's divisive effect of bringing the Azorians into the army, of which of course Zeno was himself an important part. Yet, against all these odds, Zeno triumphed. First, he survived the treachery of his mother-in-law, Verena. Second, he suppressed the Isaurian uprising of Ilus. Third, the Hanoticon allowed Egypt and Syria to moderate their opposition to Constantinople. But his fourth, and by far his most important achievement, was to get Theodoric the Amal to leave the Balkans for Italy. Although our sources are vague, I suggest this was because the field armies lost at Carthage were reconstituted in Zeno's reign. All in all, Zeno was a great survivor and a great rebuilder and his reign was an important building block on the path to the glorious age of the Emperor Justinian. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. And in the next episode, in two weeks' time on the 14th of October, we'll hear about Zeno's successor, Anastasius. And in the meantime, if you like the podcast, please do leave a review in whatever podcast app you use. And also do check out my website at nickholmesauthor.com, where you'll find a free ebook, maps, blogs, and my books. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.